the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. It's Wine Women Radio. We're back. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm Marcia Meekumber, one of your co-hosts here today. And uh, our apologies for being gone for a bit. Um, Before introducing the co-hosts, I'll mention just briefly, we were sidelined a little bit by harvest because, of course, wineries all get extraordinarily busy during harvest. Uh, And then right in the middle of harvest, we had a very large wildfire, the glass fire, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, And that also set us back and threw our schedule off a bit. But we are back on track now, which is super exciting. And I'm here with my co-host, Misty Rodebush-Keen. Good afternoon, Misty. Yes, good afternoon, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great great to have you here. And Lisa Adams-Walter. Hey, Lisa. Hello, everybody. Nice to get back on track again, isn't it? Very nice and nice to be breathing some clean air in wine country. Yeah, we we went through at least a good solid two weeks, if not more, of uh, very unbreathable air, not to mention from time to time we had very orange skies, and I don't mean orange sun, I mean you couldn't see the sky. It was so dark and orange. Um, Made us all very uncomfortable and definitely threw off our our work and it threw off the harvest. Uh, So let me ask both of you, um, I know neither of you had to evacuate, which is good that the fires didn't cause you to evacuate, Um, but undoubtedly it it affected your work and what's happening with your involvement in the wine industry. Let me go backwards, Lisa. Um, anything in particular pop up to you about, you know, the last month, six weeks that we've been off the air that you weren't, you know, able to participate in the wine industry or had to, you know, juggle things quickly? Well, for some of the wineries that I work with, it's especially challenging because they've been in the middle of harvest. And also some of them were personally evacuated from their homes or they would have people that work in their hospitality centers evacuated. Um, Fortunately, in my situation, everyone came through safely, but there's been a lot of devastation, mostly in remote areas. So, you know, much of wine country, most of wine country is open and welcoming visitors. Um, But for me, I think the biggest challenge was just feeling like I couldn't really go anywhere because you couldn't breathe. I mean, you just couldn't breathe. I mean, it was challenging for me even to go just outside and, you know, walk around my town and I'm just really grateful for Cal Fire and all the firefighters and first responders from all over that came to help us here in wine country. We needed it. Yay. Yeah, Lisa Lisa brought up just a great point about, you know, the duration of the fires because it really with with this last go around, it really was two fires almost back to back. We had the LNU complex fire that started in the middle of August. And then right after that, um, shortly after we were starting to see some blue skies again, the, um, the glass fires started. So it's definitely, you know, 
where I'm from, St. Supery is the winery that I work with. And we are so grateful that, you know, all of our, none of our employees and our buildings, everything is safe. And, you know, no one had any loss in that regards. Um, so we're, we're thankful for that. You know, we did have some difficult things that we needed to work through and we did lose a few acres of vineyard. So that was, um, you know, definitely difficult for our winemaking and executive team to work through. Yeah. I know with um, one of my clients, Mathis Wine, um, because uh, the entire growing season and then the harvest season has moved up a, a couple of weeks, at least particularly this year from the norm, um, all the crop came in um, before, before the glass fire, uh, for sure. And the LNU complex was far enough away from downtown Napa that it did not have any effect on the Mathis wine um, harvest this year. But it certainly uh, made for gloomy skies um, because as you said, the LNU complex fire started on August 15th and kept going for two weeks and through Labor Day. Um, and it was, although it was under control and blowing east, so we had relatively um, clear skies for a long time, Right away, we had the glass fire come back up again on the 28th of September. So fire season started much earlier than we were expecting. And now we are looking at potentially um, having some PSPSs, just known as power being shut off, um, starting potentially tomorrow evening, um, just for one night, I believe, so far. And that's just a preventive measure to make sure we don't have any more fires starting, which is a good one, thing. One thing, Marsha, that's really um, unique and great to point out is just really the unity and the banding from a community perspective that the Napa Valley, even Sonoma Valley has had throughout. I mean, every every fire, every crisis, it seems like, you know, the team just, or the, the counties just get stronger and stronger, but there was a real sense of community banding and bonding. And I'm seeing that like carrying through, you know, with, with messaging from wineries, just outpouring of support for the firefighters that really worked the lines, the winemakers that stayed there in the vineyards, you know, doing what they could to start back backburns and protecting their vineyard sites. So it was, um, it was definitely, and it's definitely still gonna, we're still gonna hear about it and we're still gonna hear about all the support that everyone um, has been putting out there. So thank you to all of the firefighters out there and first responders, because yeah. it was difficult. Yeah. I mean, there's many, many work. Yeah, there are many store stories that are coming out, like you're saying, of heroism. And and I, I think one of the things that stuck out to me, I know a winemaker up on Howell Mountain was up there for a couple of days, just, tr you know, putting out the spot bars all around their winery to save it. And it's not because the firefighters aren't there, aren't available. It's, these fires are so massive. There just aren't enough of them. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling to think of the percentage. And I don't know, maybe one of you knows, but a very, very high percentage of Napa County has been burned in this fire season, which is even further mind boggling to think that we have a season called fire season. <laughs> so, you know, it used to be harvest season. <laughs> right, right. Which is one of the most beautiful times to visit. So hopefully it's all behind us in 2020 and, and people can show up and um, 
the best way to support wineries is to buy wine, try wine, taste wine, and um, you know, order online if you can't come here. And um, wherever you're listening from around the country, support wine country. Yeah. And I can say on a positive note that my other clients who happen to be um, wine tour operators um, are seeing a steady drip of business. So they are having people fly in from other parts of the country and do tours with them to, to wine country. So that's a really positive sign and we want to see that all keep going. And the skies are blue now and the air is, it looks beautiful now. So we are, we're out of it and it's um, definitely we're open and welcoming folks at yeah. the winery. Well, now is a good time to introduce our guest today because he was in the thick of it. I mean, really, really in the thick of it during the glass fire in a big way. Um, Kirk Menji, and do I have your last name pronounced correctly, Kirk? Uh, you know, it, it, anything works, but, but it's Vengi. Vengi. <laughs> yeah, Vengi. it's Vengi. V-E-N-G-E, folks. And you, know, you can look up more details uh, about his winery and vineyards at vinyards.com, V-E-N-G-E vineyards.com to learn a lot more about um, his offerings and his background because he is a third generation winemaker and uh, resident of, of Napa Valley growing up in Rutherford. Uh, I suppose... Before we talk about the fire, we should really let you, Kirk, talk about um, the family history for those who may not know it, because you have, you, your family has a long and storied history in Napa Valley, so we should let you tell it. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. It's great to, uh, to take a break in harvest and be joining you three and everybody out listening. It's uh, yeah, it's been a, a quite a quite a ride this season. So this is kind of a, a welcome break, having a glass of wine or two with with all of you. So thank you for the opportunity right now to do that. We uh, we're still in the in the thick of harvest, um, and we'll talk some more about that. But the uh, yeah, the family, my family, the Vengis, got their start actually in wine through the importation of wine. My grandfather. Uh, his name is Pierre. We're Danish. So my, my grandfather, Pierre, which means Peter uh, in, you know, in English, uh, but Danish Pierre, he got us into the business via his upbringing. So he was actually born in Argentina, my Danish grandfather, born in Argentina. And then in uh, high school era, high school days, this is like fast forward to the 1930s, 2930, that era moved to Paris, where my great-grandfather started a, um, you know, the George Jensen silversmith. So he started in the Place Vendôme, he started a George Jensen uh, silversmith's franchise in Paris. So my grandfather went to high school in Paris. He ended up going to Sorbonne University after high school. And then from there, he went to the London School of Economics. So my grandfather, Pierre, was uh, a scholarly guy by this time he knew Danish, Spanish, English, and French. And um, probably he's definitely certainly the smartest of all of us probably combined. And he um, then moved uh, out of out of college, immigrated to the United States, and worked uh, set up shop in Southern California. Actually his first job was working for Hughes Aviation. 
and uh, for Howard Hughes back in in uh, wow. yeah, it's cool. So back in in like late forties, my father is a baby boomer. He was born in forty five, and um, but but they set up after after Hughes Aviation, he began an import company. My grandfather Pierre again, he started an import company and was selling Western European wines and spirits. So Spanish, Portuguese, French, of course, Italian, um, and some, some kind of oddities from around Scandinavia, including Akavit and bitters and this kind of thing. So my father grew up as a stock boy. He was working, running around. Um, as soon as he could drive, he was delivering uh, wine or other things to restaurants around the greater LA basin. You know, San Gabriel, San Marino, um, Pasadena, that's kind of where they got their start, okay? And so my father decided, my father Nils Vangie, he owns Saddleback Cellars, he's, he's been a winemaker for a long, long time. Uh, he decided to go to college to learn wine growing, get a degree in viticulture. So he graduated gosh, in uh, 1968 from UC Davis with a degree in viticulture. And then you fast forward, 30 years later, I got my degree from UC Davis as well in viticulture and enology. And we started, we started out together. I was, uh, I was helping at Saddleback, helping make the Vengi wines as well. And then around 2000, so I started making the Vengi brand in 2003. I graduated in 98. I worked for the family. I took over winemaking for Vengi in 2003. I took over the brand in 2008. And at that point, my parents sold um, the original Vengi winery to what is Maris Winery today. And that, uh, so that winery was, was fortunately spared. It was built in 1891 and I remodeled that, that place. And it's a beautiful site, 72 acres in, in Crystal Springs Road. And that winery was spared from fire barely, just barely. So I'm grateful for that because that was a, a joy to build that property. But, in 2008, moved in the springtime, sold to, to uh, Bill Foley and the Foley Group to move to Calistoga. And I found this property here, uh, just south of the town. And so if anyone's listening, been to Solage or anybody through Calistoga, just a couple miles south on Silverado Trail on the east-hand side is where my winery is today. So our neighbors include Claude Pagas and the new Girard Winery, Kelly Fleming Winery is uh, just a short ways away, um, Pfeiffer Pavit, and unfortunately Fairwinds, which is the old Cubasol, that one was destroyed, the, the front of the house. They have a tasting room uh, that was leveled um, in there, but their cave is intact, of course, like every cave is. It's just uh, now time to rebuild, but that's that's the family history. So um, I thought, yeah, God, Got my two kids. I'm a single man, but I got my two kids and um, have uh, a girlfriend, Brittany, which is wonderful. And and uh, yeah, hopefully my children want to take over and do this in the future, and um, you know, and, and grow up to be like dad one day. I hope. You know, so <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, they're they're right. ten and eight right now. Ten and eight years old. So that's kind of. And my father still makes wine. He still has Saddleback Cellars and. Uh, is in his, I think, 50th vintage this year of making wine, um, something like that. So he's, uh, he's a veteran and slowly kind of moving away from it. He's starting to retire more and more every, every season, but uh, still enjoys the harvest time. So 
I have um, big memory, Kirk, of uh, Nil, your dad, uh, being the first in the Valley to get a 100-point score. Is, do I remember that correctly? That's, that's correct. So while he was at, he met Dennis and Judy Groff, I believe, back in 1981. And he was looking to make a change. He was at Villa Mount Eden, which is where Plump Jack Winery is today. He was looking to make a change about 1980 or so. And then 81 was his first vintage of Groff. And he was there for the next 14 years. And uh, it was the 85 reserve cab that Robert Parker gave the first 100 in America to. And so um, something that we share is uh, I got I got a 100 from Robert Parker for a 13. Of, I was making the wines for Bovinia, which is now sold and dissolved. But uh, the 13 Bovinia Reserve Cabernet. And so I think that placed us as the first father and son group to get a perfect score ever. Wow. That's fabulous. I think so. You know, for that's different pretty programs, darn exciting. It's pretty yeah. difficult to do. So that's, that's quite yeah. an accomplishment. And I think that was special while Bob, was, you know, Robert Parker, while Bob was still the reviewer for The Advocate at the time. So that, you know, because it's that, that one person for the, the program. So yeah. Something that I'm, I'm happy about. Yeah. So, so for our listeners near, near and far, you mentioned that, you know, you're on the outskirts of Calistoga. And I think now's a good time because you were, you were right in the thick of it with the fires to kind of get the point of view from somebody who really was in it. I mean, you, you know, you were up in the middle of the night, you, the, the hellfire shooed you off your property. Um, and when it was, when it was safe enough, you went back and uh, started putting out spot fires and, and got a, a truck to also help you out of official firefighters. Probably all of this is something that you never anticipated in your time getting a degree at UC Davis that um, building facilities for wine was going to become part of your job description and fighting fires was going to become part of your job description. And yet it, I guess it's just all part of the land. What was it like in the midst of the glass fire? Yeah, this, so the fires this year have been just outrageous. It's, it's like nothing you could script probably. I mean, one, I remember the, you know, just backing up a little ways to the LN, LNU fires where uh, lightning came floating through the valley. It was a gray day and it was a, quite a, um, it, it, it actually had rained quite a bit that day yep. as well. And then thinking, okay, it's wet out. And then fire starting pretty much all over the place in all of California. And that was something that, um, I couldn't, I couldn't really get my head around and, and how that had moved from, you know, it, I think 16 different fires had kicked up in Napa Valley and Sonoma itself. And that, and that equated to about 260,000 acres, something like that. And most of these were out in the woods in the wilderness. So we were talking earlier how this, that fire lasted for two weeks and that's that's good and bad. I mean, one the good is that it's gonna these these areas of wilderness will not grow or or burn again for quite some time. That's the hope. 
but it also set just so much smoke in the air. And as a winemaker, of course, you see smoke in the air, and we learned this in 17, you're very, you're terrified. Immediately you start thinking, um, this is gonna be a doomsday of a vintage. And it was only August, late August, one of the earlier seasons we've seen. So there's fruit coming in and there was ripeness happening. But all of a sudden this, uh, this fire was in the air. Anyway, we, you know, I, I make wine. I have another winery besides Vengi. It's called Croy Estate over in Sonoma County in Russian River. And this year we did not pick any Pinot Noir for Croy. And, and, you know, of six vineyards that we picked from, Richie Vineyard, Bacigalupes, um, a couple of uh, Dutton Ranches, and, and, and some great plat vineyard, great sites that we couldn't uh, fathom getting fruit from. The, uh, and and it, we ran these tests. Well, over in Napa Valley, we were a little more fortunate. It seemed in the valley floor, especially in the further south or north you could get, vineyards really weren't sitting in smoke. Okay, so we get through the LMU complex and we're, we're testing grapes and we're waiting for the samples to come around and it's taking forever. And then we just start, you know, we, we start picking what's right. Okay, and so we start grabbing and, and then and then all of a sudden the glass fire hit and that one, which I believe was started by an electrical fence to keep bears out of a property and the glass fire that started south of us kind of near my first winery that I was speaking about called Maris over by Crystal Springs Road. It hit that hillside and just took off like crazy. It ran right up to Angwin and started moving south and north. Today, if you drive the Silverado Trail, it begins at around Joseph Phelps. You know, the, the LNU fire tore everything out from Rutherford South. If you go three miles north, you hit before, you hit Joseph Phelps in that tap, Taplin Lane. Everything from there, burning all the way to Mount St. Helena is, is the glass fire. And then it, it continued over to Sonoma site as well, as amazing as that was. Um, it just jumped, leapfrogged over St. Helena and then just kept moving west. So yeah, we were caught, you know, it was, uh, that began on Sunday and we got word or actually, gosh, what, what day was that? Was that Saturday or Sunday? I think it was Sunday that we got- Sunday was the 27th. Yeah, this Sunday the 27th. And fire at that time was all through, you know, the Davis estate and, or, or actually it was south of that. It was in, in uh, that, that, that area of um, North Crystal Springs Road. And it was all aglow and it was moving, moving north. It wasn't a crazy windy night like the LNUs or the 17 fires. So things were moving and it was, it was moving north. And then the next day, well, that Sunday afternoon, it was up by Davis Estates, or just still a little bit south of us in Davis, and that's kind of halfway Duckhorn area. Um, but then Monday morning comes around, and whenever it's fire, you have sleepless nights. So every other hour, I was waking up, looking out from Tubbs Lane, where I live, and certainly we saw fire that in 17, the Tubbs fire, but looking south and seeing you know, towering flames, you know, 50 feet high from Tubbs Lane. And I thought, it's time now, time to go take a closer look and see where this is actually moving toward. Because if it's that close and I can see it, it's, it's something's, something's going on. So, I, you know, I, 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 it was 4.30 in the morning, put on flip-flops, got out the door, not thinking anything like this was the last time I was going to step out the door and, and, and not come back. But got into uh, 
got in the car, raced on down, saw the uh, saw the fire was just about to jump to our our property. These are little these little tucked in valleys all up and down the Silverado Trail. So as I was coming down, I thought, oh goodness, that's going to be you know there was already a fire barricade, so I had to kind of meander, weave through uh, a neighbor's property, cruise you know get through a, a creek, a dried up creek bed, back over to my side and then drive in through the vine rows. And so it was, because there was fire on my main driveway, two, two residents lost their houses that night, or that morning rather. And then looking at the hillside catching on fire at, at my place, uh, was, it was just out of this world. <laughs> so drove up to the winery, got on the crush pad here, looked, you know, kind of figuring it out. And there was a CDF uh, kind of scout truck. And he said, you know, really the, the chance of this going up in fire right now is a hundred percent. You don't, you need to move. Oh away. my gosh. <laughs> no this will be here in five to 10 minutes. And that's a know, lot to take in. Yeah, there's a lot. That was like, you kind of, you kind of gasp and you just, you know, none of the trees are on fire yet. Everything's happening. Uh, but the flare-ups of the trees and the way it was moving was so fast. And by then the wind had kicked up and started getting windy and it was hot. So got back in the car, drove back the way I came through the vine rows about four, you know, 300 yards where my vine rows and I share a property line with Fisher Vineyard. So I stopped right in the middle and it was like time stood still. You, you, all you could do is watch. Took a, took a handful of photographs, I thought that might be the memory, you know, and, and just kind of say goodbyes and thinking this, this, I don't know what we'll, what we'll be able to, to do, you know, if this goes up, it'll get, it'll be burning out of control. The building's wood sided. It's made of steel interior, but a wood sided building. So it would just, it would go. And but the vineyard was clean and everything, but anyway, the flash of the trees. So I'm watching, you could feel the heat from that several hundred yards the flash of the trees was happening. And then it kind of moved on. It stopped. The, 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 there was the bright white canvas had, you know, tamed itself back down. There was plenty on fire, a lot going on, but that flare up had kind of hit its end and, and moved actually south. It moved south to uh, the neighbor's properties and was terrorizing those, that hillside all around us on two sides. And so after that, I, got back in the car, drove back to the crush pad where a Fremont fire, Fremont, the city uh, fire truck was arriving the same time as I was. They said, hey, uh, we can, you know, nothing had exploded yet. I was waiting for the generator to melt, for the, the white picking bins to catch on fire like they do, the walls to start black, you know, get black smoke and going, but nothing had gone yet. And I thought, wow, well, we can, if, if I pull out all the fire, all the all the hoses, we have our fire tank. We could keep this off and keep it off the tasting room. That's what I was mostly concerned about. I thought the winery would flare up, but there's really not that much flammable other than the walls to burn in here. Did was, you have what was your water source, Kirk? We have every winery has water fire protection, or modern wineries do. The older ones weren't required, but we had. At that point, we had about 40,000 gallons of water protection to, to, get us, to get us by. So the fire trucks hooked into two of my hydrants. I had the other 
uh, you know, four fire, four water hoses just for rinsing water. And we had our generator working. First year that I've had a generator, unbelievable. So first year, the rest of the these uh, these vintages, we've just kind of struggled through when the power would go out on these rolling blackouts. But had the generator going, had the water hooked up, just started pouring it onto the the property line and knocking down fire. It was in the olive trees. It was in the the, the ornamental bark. We're changing that out right now to gravel because <laughs> <laughs> it all burned. And we just kept it uh, kept the fire down from two two major sides. And then it didn't. And thank God it didn't hit the mount the hill that the the tasting room was on. We were able to stop it. So, wow. And then there's another nice, big, beautiful home on top above us of the tasting room. And it was safe. Wow. That's, that's quite a story. Uh, I'm curious, Kirk, and now in hindsight, and you know, this, this isn't unfortunately going to be our last fire season around here. What do you think some of our, our lessons are, are, are specifics? Like, were there mental notes you made of these are the, some things I'm going to change if we get out of this without losing the whole thing? You know, it's, you got to have good karma because I think that really carries a lot of weight and we try to be good people here um, and do well by others. So, so uh, I think that starts right there. Um, the second thing is defensible space. So this is something none of us really want to tackle every springtime. You know, it takes two or three mowings to keep your, your property clean and then limbing up the trees. And so we've, uh, we've been doing that. Um, every year since we, we got here in 2008, it's always been defensible space. And you can see where in those areas of low mowing, there isn't any fire. The fire didn't even want to uh, catch on, you know, these, these grasses that are one inch tall. It really didn't, does, it's not, fire is not interested in that. It's interested in what's all blowing together and wishing in the wind, not, not the very low cut it, to uh, defend your house. It really works. I, I, I think it's, I look at it as it's, you know, I didn't think it was fireproof as much as it is. So if you can defend your, you know, limb your trees up to five feet and keep the little trees out, you just, you just unplug those and mow them down um, and then keep the grass really low and you'll be fine for the most part. And then keep, you've got to keep, uh, you know, shrubbery away from the the building or the house that that those burn very hot when they go right uh, but small stuff is is fine right and our listeners may not realize you'd mentioned a bit about this at the opening um uh some of some of your immediate neighbors like fair winds um literally the the winds were not fair to them and you know although their caves are there and they ha they do have a beautiful cave system i've been there um, uh, it, and one of the things I always liked about their property was the great part was underground. <laughs> um, so it shouldn't be that horrible, I hope, for them to rebuild. But uh, do, you, do you feel like, you know, your immediate neighbors and what they, you know, everybody worked pretty hard to, to do as much preventive work as they could? Well, you know, I think with homes like you know our our, our neighbor uh, just above us was very fire conscious he was always keeping the trees out and mowing but i think at the top of the mountain you you take the brunt of it 
a lot differently than if you're down low. You know, the fire wants to climb. That's its nature is to go higher. And at the top of, you know, these beautiful mountaintop homes, which that was one of them, uh, those, those, it had fire coming from 360 degrees around it. You know, Pfeiffer Pavit is the, the property just below and all the trees behind uh, Suzanne and, and Shane's, they went up the, uh, their home unfortunately was burned as well in total, you know, total loss. Um, but, you know, you're surrounded by, by the woods, you know, part of wine country is being a part of nature as well. And so we place ourselves in these beautiful, you know, environments, they're not industrial, they're wooded, they're, they're, they're very scenic and also flammable. And that's, uh, you know, the best terroir is on hillsides, you know, many people think, and I, I agree with that quite a bit, but it's where fire will always ravage, you know, yeah. you know, stagecoach vineyard twice in 17 and again in 20, you know, I lost uh, 15 tons of Cabernet from them. Mm. We didn't take. And Syrah designates, vineyard designates. We picked a total of about 40% of our normal year this year. So that puts us back in position where we were in about 2010. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty painful. Um, but as they say, uh, and because we've only got a one hour show, this okay. too shall pass. So I think uh, now is a good time to, to celebrate uh, the accomplishments of past vintages and so forth. And uh, for our listeners to know, we know from the fabulous samples that you shared with us that you are a consulting winemaker for at least 11 wineries because um, our first sample to taste today comes from the 1111 winery which listeners can find at 1111wines.com that's spelled out 11 folks so hope you can find that and i'm so excited because misty and i talked about this right before we started recording it's been a long time since we've enjoyed riesling so we were so excited to get to sample some so tell us about this 1111 2019 Carol's Song Riesling. Yeah, so so the 1111 group um, is comprised of Elia Nest, Aurelian Rulon, and a woman named Carol Vasilakis. And she, um, so Carol, this is named for her. She loves Riesling. So we had, the group had the opportunity to replant a vineyard in the Oak Knoll Appalachian. So this is off of, uh, you know, kind of, um, it's, it's off of uh, Oak Knoll and Big Ranch Road in that neighborhood. Yep. Madera is very near there, if, if people are familiar with that winery, um, not far from Trefethen. So Riesling we thought would be, you know, one Carol loves it. She's one of the, the, the main pillars of this brand and so, we thought let's put some some grapes in the ground for Carol because it's a cooler area. So, you know, with any viticulture, you want to adapt the terroir with the plant, with what you're going to grow. So, Oak Knoll is a typically a little bit cooler area. Um, late ripening varietals or late ripening clones of varietals don't do too well there, but it's great for it's a great site, great area for almost everything because it's that that southern midpoint of the valley and. Um, 
so this Riesling, we only pick about a ton and a half. So we make a total, make it maybe two tons. So make a total of four to five barrels, 100 to 125 cases per year. Oh. These wines are about six, five years old now. This is their, the 19 was the second year of us making this. And I'm, I, it's the only Riesling that I make for anyone. We wanted to create this dry, you know, kind of imagine yourself by the swimming pool or on the, on the boat, you know, it's a warm, hot day kind of summer wine. And I thought for this, you know, audience and for what we were doing today, I thought, let's not forget, you know, the sunshine in the summer, it's still on. And, and I think uh, this wine really speaks to that kind of mood really, really well. And so I hope you enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, we, we stainless steel ferment and then barrel age for only about three, four months. And then we pull out a barrel and go right to bottle. So uh, kind of a quick turnaround wine, try to keep it bright and fresh, really racy um, and mineral. It has those, uh, those, those elements of, I think some old world as well, but it's got, it's got a little tropical fruit, to, citrus fruit for sure. So lower on the alcohol, we try to keep under 13 on this, but um, yeah, so I think the program's going really well. The vines are doing really, really nicely. It's an alluvial kind of gravel slash silt soil, um, but they're, they're, gonna, they're well rooted. We try not to irrigate too much. That soil really holds moisture well, so we can let that, that terroir express a little bit. And Kurt, you mentioned the alluvial and the gravel soil. Does that play into the um, to the minerality and to the um, sort of vibrancy that you are able to obtain with this wine? That it does. Well, that and the, the the climate. Okay, so the climate there at Oak Knoll, being that it it gets cool nights, foggy mornings, that helps retain the acidity and the freshness. So we'll grab some hang time if we can get cold nights. And we can get that marine layer as well. So that's, um, that's going to help retain that. Then we're very conscious to try to pick it right around 21 bricks. So just past the point you would start thinking about, you know, finishing your sparkling wine season, that's when Riesling kicks on. And, and some early, you know, steely Chardonnays, that kind of thing. But that's where we're capturing this. I want to see the acid in the mid seven and a halves or 0.75. That's that grams per liter, grams per hundred mil. That's where I want to see uh, the acidity end up and not get, you know, we, we use neutral oak barrels, old Sauvignon Blanc barrels that are five years old, but I don't want barrel impact. I want barrel breathing and I don't want barrel impact on this one. I um, love this. This yeah. is great. Uh, you know, it's, it's got what I would think of as like new world creaminess to it but it's still the backbone structure of classic Riesling acidity to it. And I'm so glad, Misty, you mentioned vibrancy. That, that, that to me is like a really important characteristic of Riesling and it's got loads of that as well. And the other thing I wanted to ask Kirk was, what are some of your favorite things to pair this with? I, I think like a walnut apple salad Something like that, you know, the, the with a goat cheese salad um, or a blue, I something like that, or um, you know, melon and prosciutto is fantastic. A cheese board for sure. Um, you know, it's very. It. 
I drink it on its own all the time. I, because it's, it just, you know, this is the wine that, you know, it's, it's in your glass. You, you know, it refreshes you, you want a second glass, you know, I'll, I'll enjoy this gardening or, you know, getting the, you know, the backyard and the barbecue going, you know, this is the kind of, of, of lead in wine that you can always grab a bottle and, and, you know, and enjoy, but not overthink. It's not something um, to really get too cerebral about. That's not the reason we make it. It's just for absolute enjoyment. You know, this is the, the summer, summer white. And most of these wines too, it is our uh, winery direct. 1111, we make a lot of small lots like this that are only winery direct. So, uh, but it's a beautiful place to come visit and buy. Yeah, they're great. And, oh, I don't know. Did you lose me or did you lose Kirk? It looks like, um, it looks like we lost Kirk or he got, for, he was, he's frozen for a second, but this yeah. is a fantastic, vibrant, I, I do want this outside and I want this outside by a pool and it's very, very refreshing and very thirst quenching. It's a fabulous it is. And it, it has a really explosive nose. You know, it's not, some Rieslings tend to be a little more austere. And this has, a, for me, a lot of floral, beautiful fruit that comes right out of the glass, which is really, really pleasant. I love it. As you know, I've been sipping it the whole time. <laughs> We've been talking with her. Me too. Fantastic. <laughs> I know I'm loving it. And I would love this with um, some cheese, like even like the the um, Cypress Grove cheeses, how they're so soft and acidic and they pair just beautifully with this. Exactly. And I get yeah. a lot of, I get a lot of lemon and lemon zest with it, which to me makes it go with so many different things. But the foods that Kirk mentions, especially since we are recording before the dinner hour, they made me really hungry. Um, the walnut and pear, you know, salad with goat cheese, all of that completely um, makes it so yummy. And Kirk is back. So he is coming on right now. So we have um, you know, technolo technology. There he is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we've, we kept going without you, Kirk, and we're just commenting on um, wrapping up the Riesling and how wonderful it is and the vibrancy and the citrus notes. Um, it's a really, really fun Riesling and I encourage all of our listeners to try it because it is um, it's very different from, you know, what you might have a perception of Riesling right. being um, if you're looking at old world style Rieslings. Yeah, so. exactly. Hey, sorry about that. I had a uh, little, little computer glitch. Or uh, uh, we, we, are all, we are all well experienced in computer glitches, so it's completely allowed. Uh, so I just want to say before we move to the next wine, um, and we will provide links, of course, um, in the um, show notes. Uh, all you got to do is go to 1111wines.com to learn more about their offerings, particularly since they are 100% direct to consumer. This is the way to find their wines or come out for a visit. Come out for a visit. <laughs> we would love to see you. So. Uh, what, what, what would you like us to move on to? Which, which of our reds would you like us to hit next? Let's go to a Venki wine. We'll, we'll, we'll bring you back to the house here. This one is 
are what we call kind of our driver. This is a large, our, one of our larger volume kind of crowd pleasing reds. This is a blend always of, of Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, Charbonneau, and Syrah. Yeah, so this, this is a very friendly one. We've got this by the glass in restaurants. You may know like Rutherford Grill by the glass. We've had it up here in Silage by the grill or by the, by the glass, by the grill. Um, so this is a great kind of entry one to what we make here at Bengi. And it's a lot of fun for people to try all those different varietals together. It makes for a pretty brooding wine. There's a maybe a, a hint of, of RS in there, a residual sugar that, you know, is kind of inherent in Zinfandels, especially ripe Zinfandels. And Scout was my old yellow Labrador retriever. So he was a rescue dog and, and it was my father back in 1996 when the, when the dog passed away, the 95 vintage was still in barrel. And he thought, let's make a hundred cases as a, you know, as an homage to the dog, kind of one of these fun one-offs. And that actually, it stuck as, as being guys, uh, Zinfandel Sangiovese blend back then. And it stuck and so he continued to make it. It sold out, he made more. And uh, year in, year out, I, you know, it's been growing and growing. I got, when I came aboard making the wines, we were, we were up to about 800 cases of this wine. And today it's our, our most popular wine north of 10, you know, eight to 10,000 cases, depending on the vintage. 2020 is gonna be a very, very light year, but, uh, cause I, I missed out on two really great old vines in, um, sources but this is uh you know so we but we've had a great run with this wine we have it in every state that we distribute in um we try to do as much with uh you know distributor aid as we can giving you know promotions and things like that to really kind of get this out there so scouts honor is a um kind of a, a drink for everyone to enjoy it's not again not that difficult to comprehend uh, a novice can enjoy it as much as, as a pro uh, when it comes to wine tasting, but also one you don't have to think too hard about at a price point of around $39. So you can open this uh, most nights of the week. So it's not going to hurt. And it goes with everything. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I noticed two like really unique characteristics about this wine that you had mentioned that the Zinfandel, it's actually old wine Zinfandel that are 60 to 100 years old. And the fact that the Charbono is dry farm. So it seems to me like that's pretty special to incorporate these two components into a wine that's widely distributed. And, you know, obviously we know dry farming and we know old wines definitely impact the yield. So, um, that's nice that you were able to incorporate those. Exactly, yeah, Misty. So most, almost everything is gonna be on the old vine spectrum. You know, the, uh, the Charbonneau, we get uh, a block that was planted 89 years ago. So, and then the Zins are, are all 50 years north. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and most of those vineyards, yeah, they were planted so long ago. There was no irrigation to get to them. They use St. George rootstocks. These are vines with great vigor that could move through the ground. They were very drought tolerant as well. And with that, yes, our yields, you know, you imagine you see a grapevine that has, you know, both cordons on it that are beautiful. You take one side of that vine and that's what you get 
when you drive when you have head trained uh, dry farm. We'll get about two tons the acre off of these these um, plants. And for listeners out there, if you know, it's it's hard to taste what a dry uh, dry farm grape or wine would taste like. But a great thing to try is just to try um, a normal, you know, cherry tomato versus one that's actually been dry farmed, and you can actually taste the difference of the complexity in the texture of the flesh and in the flavors that you're able to pull out. So it's really a fun experiment to try. Yeah, and I'm sure. I'm sure you get that, Kirk, when you're trying the grapes out in the vineyard and doing your vineyard walks. Oh yeah, and you know the and Zinfandel should really, I in my opinion, be head trained and dry farmed. You keep the yields really low. You don't give them water. Let them dry. You know, plant it on Saint George. Let it really drive its roots deep, because when you put it on wires, Zinfandel on wires, it it, it becomes vigorous. It wants to grow like crazy. It wants to set so much fruit that the best you can get out of those grapevines is pink berries. Pink berries, <laughs> they're, very, they're very watered out. They're overcropped. We spend so much money, you know, to repair that setup, you know, by clipping fruit out, throwing, you know, so many pounds of, of uh, fruit on the ground. You know, it looks, it, you leave half on the ground, half on the vine. Um, so, the head train dry farm is is right. We get it from Frediani, the the Hambrick branch out in Sonoma, the Grist, um, the Lavisis here, which are relatives to Frediani. I grow some that was planted in the '40s. Also from Croy Estate, my other winery in Sonoma, we pull a little bit of that fruit, and that was originally planted in 1904. That's a heritage vineyard, meaning it was planted and never ripped and replanted. So you know, but now what you will replant too is kind of on based on on preference. So imagine you have a 10 acre block and you want more color. Your replants might be Charbonneau, Alicante, or Petitsera. And that's what these guys have done. We must have over at Croy, you know, six different varietals in that vineyard. Well, I was, oh, sorry, I was go gonna say, I was just gonna add that I've always thought this is a really fun brand and fun wine. And the first time I tried it, a neighbor of mine gave me a bottle as a gift because he knew that I love dogs. <laughs> so that's how I first became involved. Or I first tried it. Um, but then the other thing for me, and I think Misty and Marsha both know this, that the first wine I ever fell in love with was a Charbonneau. When I was very young, I was still in college. And so I always gravitate. If, if I see a wine on a wine list somewhere and there's Charbonneau as a component, I will order it just for that reason alone. So that's really special that you you're able to work with those old vines and those grapes and incorporate them, as Missy said, in a wine that's pretty widely available. Yeah. 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 And Charbono, to my memory, and, and, and Kirk can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's pretty limited these days to Calistoga and Upper St. Helena. Um, it, is, it is not grown in the U.S. Um, very far from that sphere. Because that seems to be the magic place for it. Am I right? Or... I think so. I, you know, um, Marsha, I know five growers that they all used to grow for Inglenook, all of them. Okay. And that's how it became. And there's Toffinelli. And Toffinelli now, you know, when Dave Finney started Prisoner, he was getting Charbono from Toffinelli Ranch. Like, <laughs> That's right across from Clopagas near Sterling Winery. Uh, the Heights family has Shipoak. 
That's the other one, but also Calistoga. The Fredianis in Calistoga. Jim Summers had it at Summers, and there is a neighbor. We've had the Summers Turbona. Yeah. yeah. So, and and one of Jim's neighbors up there on on Tubbs Lane also had Charbonneau. Those are the five sources that I know of. I think personally, I think I get I pick about twenty tons of Charbonneau from the Frediani family, and I think I get the majority share of <laughs> Charbonneau in Calistoga. Good so, for you. Yeah, thank it's you. A, it's beautiful, and um, to me, uh, you know. For our listeners who are trying to think, you know, what is Charbono like? There's, it's just like a lot of red fruit notes, the Charbono. Um, that, that, that's, to me, that's a lot of the characteristic of it. So if, if you're a fan of that kind of flavor profile, it's great for you. And it really balances out the Zinfandel because the Zinfandel yep. is so much rich black fruit characteristics that it's a great, great component to pair with. So it's a nice blend. All right, well, we, we, we went to move on. We got another wine here. We definitely got to get this. Um, we, we could not squeeze in all at least 11 consulting um, winemaker wines. It'd be, it'd be one, one incredible Zoom, and, and the conversation would just get uh, deeper and deeper, I'm sure. Engine. <laughs> <laughs> for, our, for our listeners, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the life of a consulting winemaker? Because I mean, 11 brands, that's a lot. Like how, 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 how does it work? I mean, what, what do you feel our listeners should know about consulting winemakers out there and the value they're adding to the wineries that they're working with? And um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, I've worked with so many different consulting wineries. I'm obviously not in the winemaking side, on the marketing side, but I always find it fascinating, the insight that they bring, the value. I mean, you've talked about so many vineyards, the connections with the different vineyard sites. You know, it's, it is my absolute love is making wine for other people. I get so much joy out of every vintage having the opportunity to work, I'm glad you asked this, Missy, um, having the opportunity to work with so many different people from different walks of life and how they got interested in wine, you know, some, you know, and I, majority of these brands I started with back in, you know, pre-2010, that was, as luck would have it, you know, I, I picked up, you know, Macaulay and Jack's Honeycutt, uh, Trespass, Baccio Divino, those were some of the first. 1111 came on um, actually in 2011, so that, that's when I, I brought them aboard. I've got B Sellers and, and Promise, um, Oscar Renteria, which is Tres Perlas, uh, and another one called Sky Devil and Mirror. So all, the, all these are beautiful programs that I love. I love making, and I love the, you know, getting to know the people that you know, have the passion to make this, these projects, you know, go through. And some of them have their own, their own vineyards, some have their own winery, others have both and some have nothing. And so there's, there's just this great, um, you know, arrangement with everybody and, and yeah, and seeing smiles on their faces, something that I do with, with each of them is make sure that they're, you know, very involved from, harvest decisions, barrel choices, our blending sessions, and the conversations that we have making these wines, especially something like Blend 27, which 
we'll come back to the table uh, at B Sellers, you know, probably five times at least, maybe maybe as many as seven or eight. We'll, we'll revisit and regroup on blending sessions. It's never over, you know. Um, you know, even even at the very last day before we go to go to bottle, we'll, we can tweak something. You know, gosh, what does it look like if two percent of that is in? You know, of the of the Kenefic Merlot, if two percent of that was added to the Sugarloaf Cab Front. You know, so we do these tweaks throughout, and and I I love that chase, the chase of perfection, or what what we can do to make the best with what we have. And it's really, um, it's really a neat thing, especially in blended wines, where you are trying to arrive at the center of the bullseye every time. Then there's designate wines where you're, you're doing, making all those steps in the vineyard. You're working with the growers, unless you own the vineyard, you're working with the grower really to arrive at that, that perfect place. In the, in the blends, we can do that in the cellar, but uh, it's the best part of my life is, is um, you know, my children, of course, I, my family life, but um, the best part of, of my career is, of, without a doubt, is getting to make wine for other people. I really love I it. Could, I could think that would just be so much fun, you know, <laughs> yeah. learning. And I mean, you have Carol's song here, which was the first wine we tried, the Riesling. So obviously that's one of the proprietors, sort of their go-to and the influence yeah. that the ownership actually has on the wines as well. That's interesting to hear. So thank you for sharing that with us. And then I bring, you know, then you asked what's the influence. So, you know, every, every part of, you know, the brand development, the, um, you, you know, any of the experience in business, distribution, the state to state, the wine scores, all of those things are part of this arithmetic to putting together a successful wine company, a successful wine. I mean, it always starts with what's in the bottle. Beyond that though, as you will attest, um, you know, the marketing, the levels of, of, of energy, it's all what goes in comes out. And uh, it's fun to encourage the, the um, you know, the client to, to go further and go beyond and do it as much as they can. And be very proud of what they've made, you know? Yeah, that that's exciting to hear and um, it's, great for our listeners to have an inside glimpse as to what the life looks like in terms of wine consulting. So thank right. you for sharing that. And this yeah, B Sellers amazing. wine is amazing. It's very chocolatey and, um, you know, I'm getting some very complex notes. Talk about the, yes, talk about, you mentioned, you know, blended wines. We're on blend 27 from B Sellers now. Uh, I think this is the 2018 vintage. Tell us a little bit about this wine, Kirk. All right, so this is the third year that we've put this, uh, this blend together and it was all about creating a right bank blend. The ownership at B Cellars, Jim Borsak and Duffy Keys started with you know, blend numbers. They came from the theory, and it's a good one, that you know, luxury goods often have numbers attached and Mercedes-Benz being, and, and BMW, those being, you know, uh, kind of the role models for why are we numbering these wines and stuff. But, but Bricks, 26 Bricks is where the brand really began. And that's kind of our, our target, 26 to 27 is Bricks or the percentage of sugar in a berry. That's kind of the target of where we like to pick besides all of the other things that you look for when a vineyard is ready. But so blend 26 is our left bank blend. Blend 27 is our right bank blend. We have one called 25. That is a kind of an Australian or, or back in the time it was 
it was kind of Aussie influence as a cab, as a cab Syrah. We have Blend 24, which is more of a Tuscan, super Tuscan, which Sangiovese, uh, Cabernet, a little bit of Petit Syrah as well in that. So, so we've, we've, you know, come up with these, these number, the number game. And if you know B sellers, you'll interpret what those are. And we also make it easy because we put it on the label for people. So um, yeah, this one being the Merlot based blend at 50%, uh, Cab Sauv 32, and then Malbec at 18. And Malbec's there for that color and that strength is what we love about it. And this is aged for 22 months, uh, bottled unfiltered, unfined. It's 75% um, new French oak. It's a big wine. But it is, it is a really deep wine as well. I mean, it is full of, of black fruit flavors, but Misty hit the nose on the head, I think, with the, this has got, you know, chocolate and cocoa notes to it. It's got some kind of hidden, you know, blue fruit in the back. You know, it's kind of hidden away. Uh, it's got spices involved. I mean, it, you know, this is this is pull up a big steak kind of wine, but perfectly drink. You know, we're drinking it without anything right now. It's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But it's big. If you like, if you like big, dark, black kind of wine, this is this is it for you, man. Thank you. So it's all integrated. Yeah, really nice. Nicely done. <laughs> yeah, and the, the plums, I mean, Marsha is definitely right with the fruit that you're able to pull out. So you can still pull out the fruit, but then you get some really nice complexity and, um, you know, those coconuts come out, which are so fantastic. Thank you, ladies. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that, really that's good. Kind of along the house style, like bee sellers, every, you know, they love full body, full throttle cabs or Bordeaux blends, you know, whether or or it doesn't matter what we make, if it's um, Sangiovese or Syrah or what have you, we look to push the limit of ripeness. This is something I try to do with all the clients. You know, there's a there's a fine line between ripe fruit and overripe fruit. We try to take it right there. So in a typical season, this one we'd mentioned already in 2020 being such an early, early year, um, it kind of throws my winemaking for a little bit of a loop because I look for those those beautiful days in October like we're having right now. This is October, what, 4th, 13th. And we're having, uh, you know, these beautiful cold nights that keep the sugars held back. The autumn is setting into the canopies. I mean, all these different pieces of ripeness and we're watching sugars climb out of 26 bricks up to 26 and a half to 27. And you know, right about then is the striking distance because you start looking at weather arriving, you know, the, the, the hint of rain or the, the close of the season, the daylight gets shorter and shorter. Those are, that, that's the slot. You know, we saw that kind of vintage in 18. We saw it um, you know, a little bit last year as well in 19, but those, uh, whereas this year, you know, was more, it's gonna be more framed with hot heat spells. And of course, um, you know, some, some kind of decision-making that you might not have done otherwise, but it's, uh, but we try to ride the, the, you know, the rail of ripeness with B sellers and, and all of them, frankly, um, to just really maximize what a yeast can do with a grape and uh, make for a delicious wine. Well, it still has a structure, longevity. 
And it is very complex. Um, I was just, you know, every time I throw my nose into the glass, and I've got the wrong kind of glass for this, but that's what I have clean right now, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Misty has the right glass, Lisa has the right glass. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it, it actually, it's different memories, and I'm like trying to pinpoint them, but it's like it triggers all kinds of olfactory memories, which we all have as we've gone around to tastings through many, many years. It is actually all of that information gets stored in our brain someplace, and it's a matter of resourcing it and, and identifying it. And it's fascinating, you know, to pick out all of the wonderful notes in this. You can definitely see how this fits. As you described, Kirk, bee sellers is going, you know, for the big Bordeaux, you know, out there, and, but it's totally integrated. I, I would not have known Malbec was in here um, had you not mentioned it. And that's the magic of the winemaker doing their job is complete integration of each variety in the bottle. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. How long do you think people can cellar this wine, the, the Blend 27 from B Cellars? Good question. You know, when we make these wines, we don't really make them difficult or, you know, unapproachable for years. We want to we sell this product and we want people to get it in their, you know, open, you know, reach for a bottle, put it, get it on the table and, uh, you know, I think our wines will always improve over the course of the first year, undoubtedly. And I say first year because you open a bottle of wine from the day of bottling up to a year from that, that, that point in time, and it's night and day. But from there, for the next four or five years, I think the wines will you know, wonderfully improve. You know, I love drinking our wines four years, five, six, seven, eight years after bottling. And then I think a wine like this, because of its, it's got the, the demeanor. I mean, it's ripe. It's a ripe wine. It's a, it's a heady, it's a sultry wine, but it has enough phenolic to, you know, meaning it's got enough color, power, richness that I think this could be a, a you know, I'd say maybe a 20 year wine, 15 to 20, depends on your cellar, of course. And everyone's got some, some space a little different. There are people with closets and there are people with proper wine cellars. And so I think, uh, you know, if you could keep it in your Euro cob at 55 degrees, this would be a candidate for, for a 20 year wine, you know, and uh, it's well, not, I, a, it's not, I a, completely a, agree. I know, um, Lisa and Misty being on the marketing side as well. We are always balancing the yin and yang here in Northern California wine country between the, the message of you can drink it now. It's great now. You don't have to wait. Um, that that appeals to one buyer right now. And then there are other buyers who are buying with a thought to cellaring. And so I only ask that question um, because there are some people who are, are who connect well with that message of how long will it cellar. And I know my immediate conclusion was, Oh yeah, this is 20, at least 20 years, but it, it is the magic of modern 
winemaking technology that we now, or rather you, because I'd make a terrible wine, but you, Kurt, can make a wine that is beautifully drinkable right now, and its flavors just evolve over many years of cellaring. And that's, I think that's the new difference that is a challenge for those of us in the marketing world to present it that way. What do you yeah. guys think? At the library programs, I think, are fantastic. Like, I know um, at St. Supri, where I'm at right now, we have a robust library program. And I am so grateful. I even have some Maris in my closet from Kirk that I still have to open um, back in the day. So I will um, be sending you a message when I open those because those wines are fantastic and definitely um, extremely seller worthy for 20 plus. Those are, those are beautiful wines. I never did make Maris. I, we sold oh, okay. in Maris. So Mark Harold started that and uh, after he left, I'm not sure who was making Maris wines, but um, Camille, Camille maybe. Camille, yeah. Camille, yes. Camille, um, and she, uh, I'm not sure if she's still with them, but he, she was his assistant early on, and uh, and then kind of inherited the program after Mark left and sold the brain. So I'm not, but I haven't, I haven't kept up with it at all. But uh, but yeah, those are those are beautiful. I was always a fan of Maris. Uh, but yeah, the Napa Valley, these wines, I think that, you know, just the, the 20 year life and, you know, they're definitely cellar worthy and it's fun to drink them now, but it's fun to save a few bottles and drink them as years come about. Or join a, or join a wine club at one of the wine, uh, wineries. Well, and B Cellars has got such a beautiful experience. They do a real, they do a whole culinary thing uh, that, takes you through their, their organic garden and it's all you know terroir to table kind of a thing as well and and you walk through the caves and barrel taste with them it's a really beautiful experience at these sellers that i recommend everybody try it's one of those things it's kind of like going uh in, in, you know in a in, in, in all seriousness it's kind of one of those milestones of like going on the wine train or going to the castle or you know, these are these are the things that you should do in in wine country. The Saint Supri uh, aroma test. At least I remember that aroma um, you know experience from years and years ago. Misty, that was at Saint Supri. That was so cool. That's the smell of vision, I think, is what it was yeah, called. Yes. Yeah, it was like yeah. I recommended that to so many people. You know, to get an experience of a place because we all make wine. We all. I think, I believe Napa Valley raises the bar for California winemaking. We all do a really nice job. We're in business here for a reason. We get to work with the world's greatest grapes uh, of their varietals and kinds. Um, but it's, it's walking away from a place where you actually took, took that, you know, that product in, or wine and you, it, it just enhanced more for you, which I think is, is so neat about these sellers. Yeah, some friends of mine are members and the offerings that they receive to come visit and like these really curated experiences that are sort of above and beyond their normal experiences are just out of this world. Like they're always ranting and raving to me about, you know, what they did at Peace Cellars. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So um, I definitely encourage everyone to check out Bee Cellars as well. I know that's a big focus at Bee Cellars is the pairing, you know, what does it pair with? And that's a huge part of their experiences. Lots of things cool to learn about. Um, 
Before we go, Kirk, one of the things we like to always ask our guests is if you want to look back at your younger self or just younger generations that are coming up through UC Davis and the other uh, training programs that are out there, say at um, SSU and the like, what kind of advice do you want to give them in your hindsight to that time? I, you know, I think it's, it's capture, you know, the advice I got was from Rick Foreman and because I grew up with his son, Toby, we're still best friends. And I grew up at Rick's house and he always looked me in the eye and he said, make, the very, very best, buy expensive grapes and make the very best wine you could ever put your name on. And so that has always resonated. Whenever I look to buy new fruit, new, new sources, new things, you know, there's this whole list of requirements that it must fill to become a Vengi wine or a Croy Estate wine or a client wine. Mm -hmm. And I would pass that on now, but in the, in the world today, though, ladies, it's different here in Napa Valley than it was 15, 20 year, 15 or 20 years ago. It's different today because where pricing then was 4,500 a ton for Cabernet, the same vineyard, that was, that was what we could get Tokolom for. That same vineyard today is 32,000. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to recommend a young person go, go find Tokolom Cab and put their put their stamp on it because that's, that's, that's going to be a tall tale. That's going to be a tall order. And, but I think you can still find quality if it's not here. I think, I think to our detriment, Napa Valley may be losing some talent. Oh, there we go again. We have a, we have the technical glitch. Yeah, it looks like it looks like it looks like we lost Kirk, but it looks like we lost Kirk. Again. But he did say that it, he he did start out to say that it seems like um, Napa Valley might be losing some talent because it's hard. Yeah. There, you know, there's there's only so much geographic area. There's only so many wineries. Um, it, it does make it tough, and and you know, frankly, we 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 all know of people who have spread out to other winemaking regions and found, um, found their, their way of being out of necessity that way and are still producing great wines. Mm -hmm. which is cool. right. And let's not forget that he's at his winery, which is surrounded by burned down properties. <laughs> right. That's oh, great. Back. So we tried to emphasize that while we were talking about the, the aftermath of the glass fire with Kirk before we lost him and he's come back again. There he is. Um, but really, <laughs> his property has been surrounded by um, wineries that didn't necessarily make it or, or lost fair, fairly large chunks of their property. So thank you, Misty, for putting that out in front on the screen. The table I'm sitting at doesn't permit that. We didn't even we didn't even mention this, Kirk, but I know you're well familiar with how devastated Spring Mountain 
and diamond. We haven't gotten into diamond map. I mean, there are, uh, there are a lot of areas of up valley, Napa Valley, up valley meaning the northern end of Napa Valley, was really devastated. Um, and, and the embers, of course, were a large portion of what affected who made it and who, what, who was less affected. Uh, nobody was unaffected. Um, but some properties made it through relatively unscathed because of the, the weirdness and wonderfulness of karma you mentioned earlier. Um, that the embers didn't fall on their property in the same way it did with other people. Yeah, I mean, there's some great, I mean, like Kane Winery, Newton Winery, great old brands. And then, uh, you know, friends of mine, like, um, that, that aren't, you know, they're not 40-year-old brands or 50-year-old brands, but uh, the, the Barron's family lost their winery. Okay. Sherwin lost, Steve and Matt Sherwin lost their winery and Linda, uh, awful. And then my, my, my dear friend, Sam Baxter, growing up, he lost a property. Well, it entirely burned. He had a, a little cabin up there that he would do host tastings. He's going to build his winery there. He will. He'll build. But um, that fire just ran right through it. I think Paloma was okay, I think. But um, I could be wrong. Anybody interested... Um... A good video that gives you a sort you'd have to find it on YouTube, but it's probably fairly easy. But Andy Schweiger's um, video of coming down the mountain from Schweiger Vineyards um, down to St. Helena um, gives you a, a fair sense of the arbitrariness of the destruction on Spring Mountain, which was also big a big part of the glass fire, but more the last part of where the glass fire jumped around and, and attacked and incinerated things. So. In any event, Kirk Benji, thank you so much for these beautiful wines from not only your own vineyard, Benji Vineyards, again, B-E-N-G-E vineyards.com. We'll put the links in the show information. Um, we have your beautiful wine from there. Also be sellers and 1111 wines. Um, the other places where you are a consulting winemaker and keeping all these many plates spinning, which is astonishing. <laughs> Thank hey, you so much for being with us today. Uh, Misty, Marsha, and Lisa, I appreciate this hour with you, or over an hour. Thank you so, so much. It's, uh, Thank it's you. Uh, uh, ladies, have happy Tuesday. Thank you for having me. As well, happy the remainder of harvest yeah. and your fermentation at this point. Thank you so much for your time. Missy yeah. and Lisa, thank you so much for your time and, and for helping getting us back on track again. And listeners, most of all, thank you for tuning in to Wine Women Radio. We really appreciate your time and tuning in and hearing what we have to say. Thank you, everybody. Have a fantastic week. Thank you. Week. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.